Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Today's show is also brought to you by Holly's Hurricane, a new novel from Marie Carter, author of The Trapeze Diaries. Set in 2040, the novel commences as Category 4 Hurricane Diana descends on New York City. Architect Holly Williams, an immigrant from England, escapes back to her home country, staying with her stepfather and visiting her ailing mother who has Alzheimer's. As Holly nervously waits to find out the effects of the hurricane on her beloved city, she begins to hallucinate. Guided by a mysterious stranger through the streetscapes of New York City's past. Lori Gwen Shapiro, author of The Stowaways, says, Smartly set in the near future, it will appeal to futurists and history buffs. Holly's Hurricane is available for digital purchase and in paperback at most online retailers. Go to mariewritesandedits.com for more information. The Bowery Boys episode 275 Return to Tin Pan Alley. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we are headed back to a location that we visited many years ago to West 28th Street, and to a stretch known as Tin Pan Alley, the birthplace of the American popular music industry. Now, on these blocks, composers and lyricists roamed from music publisher to music publisher, hawking their latest tunes. And from here, that music then appeared in New York theaters and then was sold as sheet music to be played on family pianos across the country. Today, many of those original buildings, believe it or not, still exist, but are now threatened with demolition and redevelopment. And that is why we're here. That's why we've revisited. Uh, We first talked about Tin Pan Alley in December of 2009. Mm -hmm. Isn't ridiculous? And we actually had the, the line nine years ago at the end of that episode. We say, well, you know, the economic crisis has actually stalled plans for its demolition. So that's a bit of a time capsule in itself. And you also note in that original show, we never mentioned this particular hot button term, the new name for the neighborhood, Nomad, no. or North of Madison. There was no mention of Nomad. And obviously, nine years later, the economic crisis has abated, is over, and construction projects are now going stronger than ever all over the city and right here, where developers are just tapping their toes, eager to get in on the game. Yeah, and this is imperiling the fate of Tin Pan Alley. So today, we're going to replay 
our 2009 visit to Tin Pan Alley. And then we're going to sit down with George Calderaro, the project head of Save Tin Pan Alley, a group working to preserve and protect these historic blocks. Yes, we will find out what exactly is threatening Tin Pan Alley today and how and how you can get involved in preserving its important history. So join us as we revisit Tin Pan Alley, the birthplace of American popular music. So to actually situate today's podcast, because we, we are going to an actual destination in the city, it's a really nondescript area today. It's not exactly a place that has been preserved in all of its glory. We're going to 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues, but really more between 6th Avenue and Broadway. Broadway right, crosses because... between them. Right. This is about five blocks south from Herald Square and five blocks north of the Flatiron Building, just to give you a little frame of reference where it is here in the city. Today, it's costume jewelry stores, women's apparel, lots of knockoff handbag stores. And it's been sort of the floral district, too. Uh, the, some of these flower shops have been moving out. It's a neighborhood without much personality. But back in the day, the time period that we're going to be talking about, which is between 1885 to 1910, in the year 1900, this area, this tiny little area, had the largest concentration of music publishers in the entire world. It was essentially the heart of the music industry. But now remember, we're talking about an era before recorded music, as I said earlier. The only way you heard music is when it was actually performed, whether it was performed by you, by a family member, by somebody on a stage, by someone on a street corner. But you weren't hearing it in any other way. Right. So when you're talking about the center of the music industry, you're talking about the center of the music publishing industry, where the music was put onto paper and sold as sheet music. And we're also talking about what we'll describe as, quote, popular music. This is sort of an innovation of the late 19th century. So but what were people doing before this? What were they listening to and how were they getting their music before this? Well, as you said, people would have to go seek out the music and listen to it being performed. Well, you know, Greg, this is actually a subject that you treated quite successfully a couple podcasts ago when you talked about Steinway and Son's piano. One of the things that you discussed was how learning to play the piano in the 19th century and early 20th century was also seen as a positive attribute for a young maiden, you know, for middle class and before that wealthier families who could afford a piano. In the early part of the 1800s, however, pianos were extremely expensive. It wasn't until the period following the Civil War where they were beginning to be mass-produced. So by 1887, there were actually 500,000 young people in the United States studying piano or taking piano lessons. 
what this meant was that there was a lot of music in the homes. Sometimes entire families would play together. And there was a big demand for sheet music because that's what they had to play unless they were playing by ear uh, without any music at all. Now, why were they playing? They were playing because that was their entertainment. Teen rebellion. So instead of a teen running to her room, slamming the door and putting on her headphones, she might slam the door and run to the piano and start banging out a tune. Well, sure. My grandmother still talks about during the Depression how she would play the piano to get out of doing other work around the house. You know, her (laughs) sister would be doing the dishes, but she could play the piano. Music publishers were also focused on churches, providing music for schools, for bands, community bands. And there was some folk music floating around as well. So when people would buy sheet music, because before Tin Pan Alley, there was still a sheet music trade. It was just more regional. And they were being sold in places like stationery stores or by even traveling salesmen. If you've seen The Music Man, you know something Mm -hmm. about Professor Harold Hill, who's hawking sheet music. The dominant form of entertainment at this period in the late 1800s, well, in the middle 1800s, there were minstrel shows that would travel around. There were white performers performing in blackface, and after the Civil War, even black performers performing in blackface. And to be clear, this was uh, one of the dominant forms of entertainment. Yes, the this dominant, this popular. One, we might see examples of this in movies and things tucked in the background as one of several forms of entertainment, but I would say this was this might be, at least for a certain period of time during the 19th century, like the leading form. Yes, before it was overtaken by vaudeville in the late 19th century. In these minstrel shows, there, there would be several different acts, including songs that would be performed. There would be spoof plays and things like that. But there was music that became popular because of these minstrel shows. However, when vaudeville took over in, say, the 1890s and 1900s, when all these big theaters were being built all around the country, suddenly there was an explosion of performers moving on the vaudeville circuit, traveling around to all these different towns, and they all needed music, and they wanted their songs to be a little bit different to set them aside as well, to have a competitive edge. They wanted that new song, that new love song, that new gag song. They needed music. Now, vaudeville in New York City, the theaters throughout time, I guess, would be scattered all over Manhattan, of course, but many of them would collect along Broadway and eventually surround Union Square, which I'll talk about in a second. And many of these vaudeville circuits would be based in New York as well. So the, the performers could at least start here, get their material here, and then head off on the road. So this is where you come up with this interesting concept, but it's, it's so natural to us now, this idea that songs would be written to be sold, like as opposed to music that comes into the ether, like a folk song, or unlike a classical piece, which would be part of a, of a larger composer's work. This is an era where people concertedly sit down, come together, write songs that they think people might want to hear, and then they go out and they actively sell them. Before Tin Pan Alley, the profession of popular music composer and lyricist didn't exist. You did have songwriters earlier in the century, Stephen Foster, for instance, who was one of these songwriters, who a prolific, who wrote a lot of great music from sure. the 19th century. There was a very rudimentary royalty system in place. He did not get compensated for a lot of the things that he did and that he wrote. There were, and he also had no legal protections. So what this new generation of song pluggers were, and this is their name that they call themselves by, song pluggers, is that they sort of had this consolidation around them, that they could go out and they could sell these things as if they're products, but they would follow through with this whole thing and try to sell the song to as wide an audience as possible for profit. 
So you had a lot of these young men coming up through the system here in New York City and would be prowling particularly around vaudeville stages around this time, around the Union Square area. You had people like, for instance, Marcus Whitmark and Sons, who would become one of the prime businesses over in Tin Pound Alley. How it would work is the Sons themselves would actually go and perform the songs in vaudeville, would actually be stage performers themselves. They might have even been the sort of Jonas Brothers of the day, including, uh-huh. including young Julius Whitmark, who was known on vaudeville as, quote, the boy soprano. <laughs> so, I mean, they literally cranked them, made the music themselves, jumped on the stages, performed them themselves, and then would take these songs and to sell them to other people. They also performed in Minstrel. And Fairly they, versatile performers. They would spin off from being performers into being music publishers and music sellers. And promoters. I mentioned this phrase, song plugger. So this was an early proto-music industry profession in the late 19th century. They would go from stage to stage. They would find performers that would be suitable for the music that they had written. And it's not just one or two people. It's like you have like two dozen different songwriters following you. If you're a star, it's like you have a swarm around you. The first real payola of the music industry happened at this time because if you were a songwriter or song plugger, you would go to these stars, you'd buy them gifts, you'd buy them drinks and dinners. If it was, say, a big female star, she might finish her show, go back to the dressing room and find a fox fur or some flowers just just to listen to a song. You know, like they would like use all these forms of bribery just to get their ears, you know? And all of this is happening even before the Tin Pan Alley scene happens on 28th Street. Sure, this is, a, this is the 1880s. They could be incredibly successful by doing this. Charles Harris, for instance, who was a songwriter at the time, wrote a song called After the Ball. In 1892. Yes, he was lucky enough to get a vaudevillian star by the name of May Irwin to perform the song in her show. And just by this sort of slow rollout, because, I mean, it wouldn't overnight sure. sell a million copies, but throughout the, ne- the few years, it would sell up to 10 million copies of sheet music because it it started here because she was able to bring the song out to the public. People would hear it. People would talk about it. People right. would go see the show. Other performers would then perform the song, and that's how it, it would roll hit, out. It would hit the circuit, the vaudeville circuit, get out there, get out to the rest of the country, who could also then go to their department stores and buy the music. I mean, could you imagine like a Lady Gaga song <laughs> rolling out <laughs> after six years, rolling out throughout the country with other people performing the song? I can. Like the star was the song, not necessarily the singer singing the song. Now, as I said, Union Square during the 1870s and 1880s was the center of musical entertainment in New York City, not just for this vaudeville burlesque stuff, but also classical music. I mean, as I discussed, Steinway Hall is here. The Academy of Music is around here. Tons of vaudeville stages, including Tony Pastor's Music Hall, which is one of the best-known vaudeville stages at the time. However, as we know, culture is floating uptown. One of the reasons that it was built there was because the area had become very fashionable with all the theaters nearby. So that was sort of on the way up to 28th Street. Right. There were a lot of theaters on 23rd. The songwriters then decide to collect nearby the entertainment industry. Very practical. Yes. And uh, settle at 28th Street. Yesterday I heard a lover sigh. Goodbye, oh me oh my. Seven times he got aboard his train. 
So probably the first publisher who settled around 28th Street was Leo Feist, who was actually a corset salesman. Did you know that? No. And he came out with the catchy tune, Does True Love Ever Run Smooth? in 1897. That might be the first actual Tin Pan Alley song. So let's walk up Broadway and hang left at 28th Street and walk over towards 6th Avenue. On the north and the south side of the street, you'll see row houses, uh, four-story row houses that were just filled with the offices of the music business. Today, there are still several on the north side and a few on the south side that exist. Now, songwriters were hustling in and out trying to sell their tunes and hoping to sell them outright or to be taken on on contract because, if, well, if they weren't a known songwriter, they'd walk in, they'd hammer out their tune. Maybe a publisher would offer them 10, 15, 20 bucks outright, no royalties. Otherwise, if they were known, they came with another catchy tune, perhaps they could be taken on staff. Performers were hustling around the streets. You can see them like ducking into the different music houses crossing the street, jostling back and forth. They were looking for their new song because they were about to go on, say, the vaudeville circuit. People performing in concert halls, downtown saloons, anything in between. They were looking for patriotic numbers, sentimental numbers, gag songs, the whole thing. And I love this part, Greg. Second-rate performers would <laughs> definitely have to pay for their music. But sometimes top stars would be given the music for free because that would get the music out there. The top stars were already attracting the big crowds. And remember that the sale that the publishers were interested in was not the sale to the performer, per se. It was the potential for getting their music out to the public and then selling it in mass. There were also these pluggers that you were talking about hustling back and forth. They were looking for jobs. Now, you mentioned that pluggers were promoters who would go to the vaudeville houses and try any way that they could to get the music on stage. Mm -hmm. The men who were also the piano players in the showrooms were called pluggers. They would plug out or plunk out the tunes in the actual showrooms for the performers when they came to visit because they were trying to sell them on the song as well. And then I like to imagine sort of huddled in the corners of these offices, we have a very important person or collection of people who today give real value to these pieces of sheet music as well. The artists who would design the covers of mm -hmm. the sheet music. Let's not underestimate the value of these covers. They were beautiful pieces, illustrations that would attract the buyer in Macy's or wherever they were being bought. It is these covers that also makes this sheet music so valuable today. Well, think of an album cover. Like, think, sure. think of when going to, what's going, what's fun going into a record store, but to see all the covers that catch your eye. Of course, now when you see them, this artwork is so ornate and beautiful and so they would have their own art staffs many of these publishing houses right. right in the old days it could just be one person but over time it would grow into an entire floor of artists who were working on the front covers as you're walking along 28th street though and you see all of this 
activity around you, buzzing about. You can hear, you can imagine, the plunking of tunes coming from windows on both sides of the streets. The cacophony of noise, Greg, mm-hmm. led legendarily. Now, this is perhaps just an urban legend, but it <laughs> did lead visiting journalist Monroe Rosenfeld in a series of articles he wrote to comment that the noise sounded like a bunch of tin pans being beaten at the same time. So this is where the name comes from, from Monroe. This is the legend, the legendary coinage of Tin Pan Alley. What I find fascinating, by the way, is, you know, you think of a modern music studio where where the artists and the producers collect themselves and it's artists standing around a microphone and there's like a mixing board where the producers and everything are, are behind that. In these days, the quote music studio was essentially a parlor. Right. And then all of these publishing houses, like the centerpiece room was some nicely upholstered furniture and right. a coffee table. And because what could they look at? The visiting performer who was coming in to buy a new piece of music, they'd be welcomed into a well, showroom. Well, the walls would be covered in artwork and photographs of all the biggest stars, all the people who had performed the music, so to give it that little luster. Right. And then, of course, the centerpiece in all of these rooms was, of course, the piano. Now, this brings up an interesting element to this whole thing, and that was the way that these songs were so market-driven and focus-grouped. They were so aggressive. They had songwriters on staff, and they had another you know, line of people beating down their doors with their tunes. And they also had on-call arrangers. So say that a particular star came in and said, well, I like that song. I hate that last verse. Right. They'll call in someone to change the verse right then and there. If they were like, oh, I like that song, but, you know, that last few chords sound awful. Change right. it. I want it upbeat. They snap their fingers and an arranger would come in and just change it right there. Can you imagine getting that kind of service today at Tower Records? <laughs> if that exists anymore. <laughs> no, I can't imagine it. <laughs> and not only that, if they liked a song that somebody else was singing in town, say they, they heard somebody perform over at Roxy's, and it was th- this great new gag song, they loved it, they could come in and say, I want a song like that. And right on the spot, they could crank out a knockoff. By the first decade of the 20th century, Tin Pan Alley, just the publishers on Tin Pan Alley here on 28th Street, produced over 25,000 songs. It was, you know... Not copies. Huh? Different songs. Different songs. No, not copies. Exactly. And if you think about how many actual pieces of sheet music that represents and how many American homes it was in, and whether or not these American homes had any idea that this music was coming from a gritty street (laughs) in Midtown. By 1900, this was a national industry, just this this music machine, this sausage factory of music (laughs) here on 28th Street. But of course, they did have, by this time, obviously, to survive, they had offices in many other cities throughout the United States that would be associated with them. That's another way of just spreading the music along. There was safety in numbers. They were able to lobby Congress and get the things that they wanted to make them even more money and just make sure that the rights of the artists were being protected. What really brought them together in one sense was the, an international copyright law that was passed in 1891. This gave music publishers incredible power. They were now able to break songs worldwide. It, it protected them and made sure that they were getting paid for music that was being sold in other countries and then back. European songs that were coming here. 
This improved profit margins. This just, just gave them more guarantees. So that in 1895 was the formation of the Music Publishers Association, which was basically like a trade union for music publishers, which really strengthened them. And they were able to then promote their needs in local, state, and national governments. This was also why they were able to make such an industry and make such an impact during this period of time. Now, these publishing companies, of course, no surprise, were firms of white young men generally but the thing is they were making music for they weren't they were making music for everybody not right. just for white young men what was particularly interesting by the way is that of course many of them were jewish which was which i find very fascinating and i've tried to find theories as to why this was the a, a fascinating one that i actually found was if you think about it german immigration patterns into new york by the 1840s and 1850s like this huge influx of german immigrants mm-hmm. by the 1880s and the 1890s they were all having children who were now in their 20s 30s 40s who were now going off into the world a lot of them were actual german jews it's more their Germanness that helped get them into this industry because music figured greatly in German culture. I mean, think of Steinway, for instance, was a German family. Leopold Damrosch mm-hmm. was German. So it's no surprise, really, that if you think about all these bright, young, talented men who were just who were coming up in, in their 30s, they were also from these backgrounds. They would be attracted to this new forms of music and this new music industry that was happening. So... Now, let me just run by these names of some of these music publishers. We've already mentioned some of them. Of course, Whitmark and Sons, mm-hmm. um, the little Jonas Brothers family. They were at 49 and 51 West 28th Street. And amongst their numbers of uh, people that they published were George M. Cohen, which I'll mention in a second. Um, Leo Feist, as you said, was at 36 28th Street and was well known for publishing songs such as Toot, Toot, Tootsie Goodbye and probably his biggest hit, which was My Blue Heaven, which was he would have published later. Other publishers, Harry Von Tilzer, the Von Tilzer Music Publishing Company. He was actually a teen from a traveling circus who worked his way into New York and worked his way into the music biz. A prolific songwriter himself and probably one of the most well-known of the publishing houses here on Tin Pan Alley. Uh, his, his big song, his big classic was A Bird in a Gilded Cage. Then there was Jerome H. Remick and Company, who would be at 45 West 28th Street. All right in a row. They're all right or there. Across the street. It's incredible right. to think of them like next door to each other. Right. He had so many hits, over 100 ragtime hits, that he actually bought his own printing plant to make all wow. of the pr- to make all of the the sheet music. His first million seller in 1906 was called the Dill Pickle Rag. <laughs> You know how that one goes, don't you? <laughs> Interestingly enough, now, like I said, it's this music's for everybody, but it's only being made by white people. In fact, some of these firms would subsidize smaller publishing firms that were owned and operated by black singers and songwriters. However, here on Tin Pan Alley, for a short time in 1905, there was a publishing company called the Gotham Attics Music Publishing. And if you weren't quite sure what this was going to be about, the Attics in its name was named for Crispus Attics, who was a martyred slave during the American Revolution. What they actually specialized in is publishing a mixture of black and white music. Collaborations, it, it was a colorblind publishing industry, and wow. pretty impressive for this period of time in 1905. And it was smack dab here in Tin Pan Alley. It was a modest success, though they were best known for publishing the song Nobody, which was the signature hit of one Burt Williams, who, if that name sounds familiar, he was one of Ziegfeld's 
prime performers during the Ziegfeld Follies. Of course. And, and that was his signature song called Nobody. By this time, they were coming up with every conceivable way of, of being able to sell this music. You could go to Macy's. You could go to, up to B. Altman's. You could go to Wanamaker's, all these department stores here in New York. They would have racks and racks of it. On top of that, they would even have piano players in the department stores that they would give the music to. And so while you were walking and doing your shopping and you kind of liked a song, you could go over and you could purchase hey, it Mr. right DJ. there. Hey, Mr. DJ. Exactly. Yes. By 1913, Billboard magazine would actually begin its very first sheet music chart, um, its very first countdown, uh, a jazz age Casey Kasem. So the first music charts were based on sheet mu- music sales. Were based on sheet music sales. Now you might be thinking, well, aren't they recording music by then? I mean, in fact, the Edison did invent the phonograph in 1877, but it would take decades for this to really become popular and sort of a normal way to hear music. And then even when people did have these Victrolas and things in their house, by 1910, 75% of the music that was being sold was classical. Like it took a long time for people to wrap their head around the ideas that these sort of popular tunes, you could also buy these, you know, records and play them in your house. When summer comes all cool and clear And my friends see me drawing near Who says, uh, come in, have some beer? Hmm, nobody. When I was in that railroad wreck And thought I'd cashed in my last check who took the engine off my neck? Not a soul. More Ten Pan Alley after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... 
No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Greg, I have a list here of some of the great songs of the Tin Pan Alley mm-hmm. era, of this specific era. And I'm, again, talking about, say, 1885 to 1910. You, of course, had After the Ball, which came out in 1892. The Sidewalks of New York, East Side, West Side, 1894. The Band Played On, 1895. A Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, mm-hmm. you know it. 1896, Hello My Baby, Hello My Ragtime Gal. <laughs> Came out 1899, Bill Bailey, Won't You Please Come Home, 1902. Didn't a dancing frog sing these songs? I think, and, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I have them right here. Uh, Mighty Like a Rose, 1901. In the Good Old Summertime, 1902. Give My Regards to Broadway, 1904. Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which was a, a major hit, 1908. Which Van Tilzer's brother, Albert, wrote. Right, old <laughs> Albert Van Tilzer. Yes. Down by the Old Millstream, another mega hit, 1910. And then the young Irving Berlin scored his first hit in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band. And that's where we can cut off this list, because then the industry moves a little uptown, and the publishing houses sort of scatter a bit around right. Midtown. Tin Pan Alley is a genre and concept as, of music as much as it is a place. So right. even though these publishing companies do start moving out around 1910, this style and this the energy that's associated with these publishing companies doesn't disperse. It just spreads out more through the, throughout the city. Which was a little confusing. Before I started my research on this, I just assumed, oh, well, George Gershwin, you know, I'm going to talk about these different songs that Gershwin wrote while he was part of Tin Pan Alley, etc. Well, Gershwin doesn't fit into this particular period because he was only born in 1898. So, so he would have been a teenager during the he, actual... He was, right, 12 years old when the, when the industry t- moved off of 28 Street. Right. However, he's still considered a Tin Pan Alley composer for some of his popular mm-hmm. songs that he was writing in the 1920s. So who were some of the popular songwriters who actually did work here on 28th Street? 
Well, one of the big ones would be George M. Cohen, who was not just a songwriter, but he was kind of an entertainment powerhouse. He lived from 1878 until 1940. He wrote music, he wrote plays, and he starred in them. Uh, he wrote really big hits like It's a Grand Old Flag in 1905, Give My Regards to Broadway, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, and Over There... And the song would come out during World War I when the publishing house had moved, but he was still considered a Tin Pan Alley composer. Irving Berlin, uh, born in 1888, lived till 1989. He learned really to make money for the family by busking songs um, at saloons in the Lower East Side and singing at Tony Pastor's Music Hall in Union Square. He went to work for Harry Von Tilzer as a plugger in 1904 mm -hmm. when he was only 16 years old. And as we mentioned, his first hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band. He wrote an incredible 1,500 popular songs, um, <laughs> including so many classics that are still with us today that it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But let's just say two of my favorites would probably be White Christmas and There's No Business Like Show Business. Mm -hmm. Now, Cole Porter was born in 1891 and lived until 1964. He is considered one of the few Tin Pan Alley songwriters who also wrote his own lyrics, but he's not actually from this era. He joined Tin Pan Alley after it had moved up, and he, he became a Broadway star in the late well, 20s. Well, he's, he's from the tradi tradition. He was familiar with all of these songwriters and familiar with how you sell music in this style. As is George Gershwin, who was born in Brooklyn as Jacob Gershowitz to a Russian-Jewish family, and in 1913, so just a couple years later, started working as a song plugger for Jerome Remick and Company, making 15 bucks a week. So it sounds like the publishers that I mentioned employed all of these iconic songwriters during their tenure. Generally speaking, yes. yes. Most of the great songwriters got their start on Tin Pan Alley in some capacity, plugging away tunes, promoting tunes, mm -hmm. or writing on staff. But Greg, what happened to Tin Pan Alley? Because we keep saying this, it's almost like there's a magic date here of 1910, 1911. Well, there isn't, a, there isn't a defining, like, this is the end of it, but it is believed that by 1909, most of these companies had left 28th Street. And like we said, they moved up to the Broadway area, they moved up to Midtown, like Feist was on 40th Street, Whitmark was on 51st, Remick was on 41st. So, I mean, they were still pretty close to each other, don't get me wrong, they were on this concert concentrate on this one street. Well, I hope they still got to see each other, have lunch sometimes or <laughs> well, something. Well, but now you had so many actors and, and producers and things buzzing through this whole neighborhood, and it was so much larger scene. It was such a larger industry by this time. They'd really gone prime time. Now, what's, of course, happening by the 1920s is recorded music is catching on, and sheet, the sales of sheet music are beginning to, to decrease. A lot of these publishing companies made a sloppy transition from, from sheet music to recorded music, an incredibly important date in the history of music, 1927, and that's when the jazz singer debuts. It actually debuts at Warner's Theater up at 1664th Broadway at 52nd Street, close to a lot of these publishers, incidentally. What this did is it opened up a brand new opportunity because it's not just recorded music on, on records. It could be recorded music on movie screens. And, you know, you could get a song onto a reel of music and then it could send it to thousands of people across the country. And so these movie companies begin buying out these Tin Pan Alley publishers. For instance, Warner Brothers bought Harms and Whitmark and Remick. MGM Studios bought out Leo Feist Publishers and Robbins. 
of course, in the 1930s came radio, the radio companies, and then they created record labels, these record companies like RCA, Columbia. If there was to be an actual official death day of Tin Pan Alley, like the official end of the era, they claim it's April 12th of 1954, because that is when Bill Haley in the comments recorded Rock Around the Clock, beginning the rock era and ending this sort of popular song movement. But incorporating, obviously, a lot of the things that were successful about it. So Rock Around the Clock killed off Tin Pan Alley. Now, the neighborhood itself, not a lot really happened since they left. Herald Square was a huge stop there. The, the 6th Avenue line. Yeah, the 6th Avenue line. And, it, yeah. and it's still a big subway stop today. Because of that, a lot of flower sellers would sort of like cluster around this area. Well, they managed to remain here in this area and then actually developed into a flower district where a lot of flower sellers would be and distribute their flowers throughout the city. The 1970s was sort of the peak of this and then they started moving out to other places. Clothing businesses seeped in, you know, and then up and down Broadway, as you know, there's all this frippery and bobble stores and, and cologne right, stores. Costume and, jewelry shops and right, knockoff colognes. In 1976, a plaque was placed on 28th Street yes. that acknowledges that this was Tin Pan Alley. But unfortunately, that's the only real uh, acknowledgement from anyone that this area really exists. Yesterday, I visited the block between Broadway and 6th Avenue on 28th, and on the north side of the street, there are still many of those original row houses, which have been in the news because they've been threatened with sale. Right. Well, in 1995, some zoning changes occurred, allowing for like housing, because this was an all-business district. Right. And so in 1995, they changed to some of it could be like condos, and some of it has been ripped down. And there was a fear if, last year that some of these buildings... Ha um, were being sold and that they were just going to be torn down. Now, financial crisis, uh, e economic woes has sort of slowed that down so that they've gotten a reprieve. But, you know, it's not a landmarked area. Uh, so there's still some concern that this area could be completely eliminated. Day is ending, birds are wending back to the shelter of each little nest they love, night shades falling, lovers calling, what makes the world go round, nothing but love, when whippoorwill calls, and evening is night, I hurry to my blue heaven. I turn to the right, a little white light will lead you to my blue heaven. A smiling face, a fireplace, a cozy room, a little nest that's nestled where the roses bloom. Just Molly and me, and baby makes three, we're happy in my blue heaven. All right. Well, we are back in 2018 now, <laughs> and we have flashed, flashed forward, jumped forward. 
And we now have the great pleasure of sitting down with George Calderaro, the project head of Save Tin Pan Alley and a board member of the 29th Street Neighborhood Association. Welcome, George. Thank you. Hi, George. It's, it's good to be here with you. We're just a few steps away, actually, from <laughs> Tin Pan Alley, which is very fortuitous. Can we start actually by, by hearing how you got involved with the kind of pre- preservation efforts um, right. to help save Tin Pan Alley? Well, it's a 30-year story, but I'll start in uh, four years ago, in 2014, when I moved to uh, East 28th Street. Tin Pan Alley, as you point out, is West 28th Street. And I moved to the neighborhood, and being civically involved and uh, active in community issues and community boards uh, for 30 years, I um, joined a group called the 29th Street Neighborhood Association, a local civic organization which was established in 2010 to uh, uphold quality of life in the neighborhood. And I quickly found out that there had been, uh, for almost 10 years at that point, a proposal to create an historic district expanding on the Madison Square North Historic District. And it was quite an extensive proposal. So uh, Madison Square North Historic District ends roughly at 27th Street, and this would take it all the way up to 34th Street and extend the eastern and western borders. And it's, as you know, being in this neighborhood, there's magnificent buildings, mm-hmm. all vestiges of when this area was the center of New York. And mm-hmm. that relates to Tintanelli, as we just heard, the theaters, the vaudeville houses, the Fifth Avenue Hotel, Ladies Mile, all of that. And all of these yeah. buildings remain large. Largely hotels, in addition to uh, Tin Pan Alley, which is nearby on 28th Street between Broadway and 6th. And um, like many people, I had heard the term Tin Pan Alley, didn't quite know what it meant, and quickly realized that not only was it a place, but that it was largely intact and that it was threatened by all of the development that's been taking place uh, since your last recording. (laughs) Right, which was, again, in 2009. So when you joined this effort in 2010... Already in 2010, there were plans that were underway. Well, yeah. the uh, To expand the historic district, that was when the, the association was founded in 2010, and then I moved here four years later and became aware of the, the efforts by the 29th Street Neighborhood Association, as well as the Historic Districts Council, the Victorian Society of America, and various other organizations that see the, the significance of this area, but also the threat. What exactly is under threat on Tin Pan Alley? Is it buildings that are threatened to be demolished? Absolutely. And it's not just on Tin Pan Alley, but we can focus on that as an example of just the, the, the rampant development in this area. Some of it is is very good, like the, the Ace Hotel, the Nomad Hotel that, uh, that are preserving historic buildings mm-hmm. and keeping mm-hmm. the integrity of the neighborhood. Others are c- uh, condo conversions like Gilsey House here on Broadway, which is a magnificent individual landmark. But much, most of the area is, is not protected by landmark designation, which for better or worse is the only way to protect a building uh, Mm -hmm. in the city. And um, as you see, a block away from Tin Pan Alley, there are literally uh, 10, maybe more, but let's say 10 to a dozen hotels in one block on 28th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. And uh, if we lose Tin Pan Alley, it could easily be the, the, the 12th or 13th hotel, which we don't need, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, to get even more into like what the kind of nomad 
phenomenon is because it's really kind of a, a, a current thing that's sort of happening right now that really wasn't around 10 years ago. And it's become trendy. It's turned to this neighborhood, which has always been here. There's always been restaurants and hotels of certain kinds of things around Tin Pan Alley. But this is just something entirely different. They're all brand new, and that is spurring other kinds of development that are building extremely tall and threatening, as you, you know, as you inferred, like lots of this area. And it's just that Tin Pan Alley just happens to be perhaps the most historically significant part of the area that isn't protected in some other way. Right. And so when you walk up 6th Avenue, you know, from 24th to 34th Street, it seems to me right now like that is a stretch of new giant hotels and luxury condos, right? right. There are and all these new buildings. And you'll notice that the, the Ladies Mile Historic District ends below 23rd Street, so which is beautiful and intact with the fantastic uh, department stores. But as soon as you leave the Historic District, you um, you know have uh, uh, apartment massive apartment buildings. In a lot of cases for better or worse, they're replacing, for better, I think, they're replacing parking lots. We right. haven't seen destruction of significant historic fabric. There are a few buildings here and there, but it's increasing on a regular basis in Tin Pan Alley and throughout Nomad. Just yesterday, we found out that, ironically, a, a magnificent Beaux-Arts hotel from the turn of the century is, is going to be coming down to, ironically, put up another hotel. So why can't oh this God. hotel be repurposed? <laughs> So, so why have these buildings then on Tin Pan Alley not been landmarked? Um, that is a question for the Landmarks Commission. It's the question for several Landmarks Commissions because for decades, Tin Pan Alley has been proposed for, historic, to, for the creation of an historic district based on its cultural significance. Mm -hmm. I think the architecture is great, but as you know, historic districts can be and landmarks can be designated on the basis of architectural or historical or cultural. And so what we are appealing to the Landmarks Commission for is cultural significance, mm -hmm. which is un undoubtable. What sorts of businesses are currently in some of those buildings now? Well, there are um, there are some tenants on the upper floors, uh, either rent-regulated or rent-stabilized tenants. Uh, there's a dance studio. There's a painting studio, a, a massage parlor, which I think gives massages, um, and <laughs> yes. uh, the, your various small, mm -hmm. small businesses there. Hair salons as right, well. Right, and, and wig stores. And, and, and these are mostly four-story row houses. Yeah, they're Italianate row houses that date from the 1850s and okay. they are pretty much intact but then the, as as all of this hustle and bustle co congregated in this area, the wealthy people who built them and owned them quickly uh, moved uptown so that by the end of the 20th uh, end of the 19th century, the songwriters were able to move in and take over. But back to this question of why it's not protected right now, is it because the architecture isn't significant enough or seen by the Landmarks Commission as significant? It could be that. I mean, historically, the uh, you know, originally you had uh, uh, the first historic district was in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, so that was an obvious contender, then followed by the Greenwich Village historic district, which is block after block of intact row house. And right. what we have heard from the commission is that the buildings have been altered, although we have evidence that they haven't been greatly altered. Uh, I was actually told by someone on the staff uh, that would uh, Irving Berlin recognize 
these buildings. Mm-hmm. And my, <laughs> my my contention is yes, and I and I, I and and even inside, you you could look inside and see the big doorways of of, of where where the and the stairways where the uh, the song pluggers mm-hmm. and would run up and mm-hmm. down the steps and and even over the roof from building to building to uh, to visit all of the publishers. Could individual buildings actually get landmark status? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it could very well be that, let's say, okay, this building will be designated uh, because that's where Take Me Out to the Ball Game was written. Oh, or, right. or yeah, this is mm-hmm. yeah, where Whitmark established one of the first publishing houses, mm-hmm. 40, 47. But as you know, there is a very intact row of, you know, about 10 buildings that um, are on the north side of the street, mm-hmm. which are, in my opinion, pristine. So let's talk about why specifically, why these buildings, why this just row of buildings on 28th Street, why they are so important to American history. Now, I know we just talked about this throughout the whole show, and that's what this show is about. But to, I guess, sort of make a plea to those people who are listening, you know, why should they be invested in this? What is it about these that is so important to the world that we live in right now? And why should they be saved? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so glad you you contextualized it as American history, mm-hmm. not just New York yeah, history, mm-hmm. because by its very nature, Tim Panelli was uh, em- millions of sheets of sheet music emanated from Tin Pan Alley, and they weren't just performed in the theater next door, the vaudeville mm-hmm. house, or Madison Square Garden down the street. They were taken across the country. They were played worldwide. They came to represent American culture. They were, for all intents and purposes, American culture globally. And the fact that this is the birthplace is truly astounding and, uh, and worth preserving. It was only for just a couple decades, right, that this was really the center of the music industry. But it's at this exact moment when music goes from something that was played in the parlor and something that you saw on the vaudeville stages to something that could be played on recorded devices. Once the music publishers move out of this area is when like recorded pop music really begins to catch on so that by the 1920s it's sort of it's sort of it's sort of its own a national pastime and radio and radio yeah exactly it's followed by film and in fact the a lot of the film companies bought the music mm-hmm. publishers you know so so they and their stable of of composers so it really the the industry was lost this yeah, is a, yeah. a real ma- microcosm so we need to get Lady Gaga involved in this. I mean, really, <laughs> you know any. <laughs> I know people who might know somebody who well, might know her. We do have um, Michael Feinstein oh. is among our supporters, and uh, he's a great advocate of the American Songbook. In fact, he's um, received an estate in Indiana to create an American Songbook museum. He was bequeathed mm-hmm. a, a three hundred and seven acre property. Wow! Um, and so I believe that that project is moving moving ahead with an American Songbook museum, and it will have a Tin Pan Alley wing, but it will not be on Tin Pan Alley. <laughs> what, so back yes. on Tin Pan Alley then, what is your group's dream, dream scenario for how to preserve this? Is it more than just preserving and designating? Is it to develop something there that honors its history? Well, the, for the time being, designation is is of primary importance mm-hmm. because as I said to one of my fellow board members who had this brilliant idea of an American Songbook Museum uh, right there on the spot uh, and uh, has, has actually started talking to some of the recording companies and music companies about doing that. But I said that we, before we do that, we need to first save the buildings. 
and mm-hmm. why don't we have the recording uh, companies advocating City Hall for mm, for yeah. designation? Mm-hmm. Mm. How can our listeners get involved in this effort? They can advocate City Hall for now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, uh, they can go to savetimpanalley.org, mm-hmm. um, sign the petition. They can join uh, 40,000 people who have signed I'll repeat that. 40,000 mm, wow. people who have signed petitions to save Tin Pan Alley and or the, the Nomad District. This is in addition to support from every elected official in this representing this area and the community board. Um, and they could sign the petition there. And then there are also it, it will immediately go to Mayor de Blasio, Deputy Mayor Glenn, the new Landmarks uh, Commission chair uh, who just started last month and various other elected officials to really put some pressure on. Because it, it is ultimately the Landmarks Commission who must designate this either building by building or just kind of include all of it in yes. the historic district. Yes, ideally the commission will designate a, a Tin Pan Alley historic district, which then needs to be upheld by the city council. But we do have the strong support of uh, city councilman Corey Johnson, who happens to also be a speaker of, of the city council right now. And represent the area. And represents the area. I mean, and this, just to reinforce this, we just, you know, strolled through there a, a, a couple hours ago mm-hmm. and... I have never seen such chaos in such in a place as it is right now. There is so much construction on either side of it on on you know both well, east, west, north, and south. Alley. Yeah, I mean at that northwest corner of Broadway and Twenty Eighth. It's really like a fragile thing. Yeah, it's, it's just a, so it's a short. Haze. It's the new hotel district. <laughs> it's just so really. short sighted, though, because yes, we had sixty-five million tourists this year, but who? What's to guarantee that we're going to have sixty-five million tourists um, next year? So the website again is savetinpanalley.org. All right, we want everyone to go visit there and see how they can get involved. Um, I also think, you know, I mean, we're not, you know, we're not trashing Nomad as a district. There's some great places there. If you're having a martini at the Ace or, or, or wherever, just walk over to 28th Street, soak in the story behind these beautiful buildings, pace the street, imagine all those song pluggers, imagine the tin pan rattling sounds of the piano yeah. emanating from all of those different windows. And remind yourself that this is such a crucial part of American music history that just seems weirdly close to being wiped out. So thank you for all the work that you're doing to preserve this important cultural institution. Thank and you, George. Thank yes. you for all the work you're doing to preserve history. Oh, well, <laughs> it's, a, oh, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, we'll have information on how you can get involved. We'll have some images, a lot of that beautiful sheet music I found in the intervening years since 2009. Greg has had nine years to look up these images. I'm glad you found those. So there'll be some of that on the on the website as well. And as well, there'll also be a list of some of the songs that were played in this in this week's show. So join us at BoweryBoysHistory.com. You should also head over to our new walking tours site, BoweryBoysWalks.com. We've got four walks going on right now. We have a history of Broadway, the landmarks and legends of Broadway walking tour, a new Ladies Mile and Cast Iron Architecture walking tour, a new NoHo Mystery and Murder and mm. NoHo walking tour, and a special Christmas in old New York walking tour. So head over to Bowery Boys Walks. 
We'd also like to thank those who support us on Patreon with your monthly contribution to to help support the things that we do. We're able to actually give you guys a little something extra, such as the new Bowery Boys Movie Club Episode 2, which just got released, which is Tom and I talking about this historical context of the movie Ghostbusters, <laughs> which is just as ridiculous and surreal as you might think it is. However, you those who support us on Patreon will also get Next, like maybe next week or in a couple weeks, audio of our live show at Joe's Pub. So that's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And thank you for your support. Thanks for joining us on this uh, revisit of historic Tin Pan Alley. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.